listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Matthew 5, 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, hey, good morning, everyone here in the room. Of course, those of you who are watching online and everyone who skipped church this morning but swore you'd listen to this while you're mowing the lawn, special thanks and welcome to you. Uh, if you haven't already, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we're looking at verses 27 through 30. Unlike last week, we are going to this week stay in this passage all morning, not jump off of it to get anywhere else. This is week two in our exploration of this passage, and in our inquiry into what Jesus taught, what Jesus believed when it comes to the topic of sex and sexuality. So I know I said a little bit earlier, but I want to reiterate, quick warning here uh, to parents, if in, at any point in this discussion you start to get uncomfortable for your kids, feel free to send them down to the kids' zone. We'll incorporate them right into what's going on, and that is totally fine. We'll make sure that they're taken care of. And to those of you who are guests with us this morning or visitors... Um, thanks for being here. <laughs> if, uh, if someone invited you and said, you got to come listen to this really interesting thing we're talking about, but they didn't tell you what that interesting thing was, um, they're trying to tell you something. So <laughs> let's jump back into this passage. You know, to, last week we said that, that in order to understand these four verses right here, we needed to first understand what Jesus already believed about sex and sexuality. Now, we spent all of last week in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we were looking at these big foundational beliefs that Jesus takes so for granted that he doesn't need to spell them out for his first audience. They all shared the same perspective. Now, those three big beliefs, I'm just going to briefly recap them now. If you want to hear about it more again, you can you know, listen back to last week's sermon. Big three beliefs. Number one, human beings, you know, all of us, we are embodied souls. We are not just physical, nor are we just spiritual. We are physical and spiritual, embodied souls. What we do with our bodies affects our souls. What we do forms us into the kind of people who do what we just did. That's first big main belief. Second main belief, marriage is a comprehensive, covenantal, one-flesh union of two embodied souls. And I spent a lot of time last week digging into that. But basically, anything less than a covenantal union of mind, body, will, soul isn't a true marriage. At least Jesus wouldn't have recognized it as a marriage. Third, sex between embodied souls only makes sense within a one-flesh marriage covenant, right? So any sexual activity outside of that kind of context, that kind of relationship, uh, literally disintegrates us. It rips apart body and soul. It, it forces us to, to do with our bodies and ask other people to do with their bodies what we're not willing to do with our souls, with the whole of our lives into the future. 
That was all last week. This week, we're going to build on that foundation of background beliefs and look more closely at what Jesus is saying and what he means when he says here in Matthew 5, 27 through 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Just like last week, we're pretty sure that what we're teaching today might raise some questions. Um, and I got to say, the questions you all texted in last week were the bomb. They were so good and really fun to engage with. I had a great time uh, discussing with Claire, our communications director, and like recording that podcast episode for you all. So this week, same thing. Remember, text in any questions you think of while I'm preaching or while you're thinking about this later. The number is up there. You can just text the question straight to that number again. If it's an embarrassing question, borrow someone else's phone and send it in that way. And we'll discuss it, and uh, you can get that in the podcast feed. If you, if you don't know where to find the podcast feed, just text the word podcast to that number, and then it will automatically send you a link. Now, as we walk through this passage, these four verses, we're going to kind of move through this in, I'll say, three kind of broad movements. Uh, first, we're going to look into this passage for the source of lust. Where does lust come from? Where does lust find its, its origin? What does Jesus have to say about the source of lust? Second, we'll spend a little bit more time there trying to learn to recognize the symptoms of lust in our own lives. Okay, how does lust actually show up in someone's life? What does it look like? What does it look like, especially in our lives? Uh, and then third, we'll spend a few minutes looking at the kind of unexpected or radical solution that Jesus offers for lust in his advice in the last two verses of this paragraph. So, source, symptoms, solution. You ready to jump in? I get a resounding yes. No, let's go. Matthew 5, 27 through 30. We're going to start with the source of lust. Where does lust come from? Now, you may have noticed, uh, if you've read through the Sermon on the Mount before, that Jesus begins this paragraph of teaching, these four verses, the same way he begins all six parts of this one section, with the phrase you have heard it said, or you have seen it written, you know, some variation on that. Then he quotes an Old Testament law, or an Old Testament law plus some of the sort of stuff that's gotten added to it, but he quotes an Old Testament law, and then re-explains that quote with a further repeated phrase, but I say to you, or some translations, and, and I also say, and then he goes on. Now, some people have called these, this whole big section the antitheses, right? That there's an Old Testament thesis and Jesus is giving the antithesis, the opposite of that. Like he's contradicting the Old Testament law. It'd be like your boss saying to you, you know, you have heard it was said that you sh can leave early today, but I say to you that you have to work overtime, right? That's an antithesis. That's not what Jesus is doing here. He's not contradicting the law. He never says, you know how the law says don't murder? Well, I say it's fine as long as you're not angry, right? The law says don't commit adultery. Well, it's fine as long as you're not lustful. That's not what he's doing. Each time he quotes each one of these six sections, which, by the way, he probably could have gone on for days sort of interpreting different parts of the Old Testament law, but we only get six of them here. Each time he does this, he's, he's taking that Old Testament law, the thing he quotes, He's assuming that it has ongoing relevance in the life of those who follow him, but he reorients the law 
towards its intended goal, which is the heart. We've said as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to keep seeing the same theme show up over and over again. Whole person, fully integrated righteousness. Righteousness that has to do with not just what you do, but also what you desire to do. And Jesus is teaching this, teaching what he does here, because the religious leaders at his time were a whole lot more interested in teaching people how not to break the rules. You know, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery than what the point of a relationship with God is in the first place. They were more interested in teaching the things to stay away from instead of the thing you're supposed to be driving towards, the transformation of your heart's desires into conformity with the character of God, you know, living in whole person righteousness in response to God's gracious rescue. Jesus does that six times in this section, and the second time is on this topic of lust. So he comes along and with this basically one statement, one paragraph, takes all of the, the law around sex and sexuality, and he refocuses it back to the heart of the issue. So let's look at verses 27 and 28. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And he's He's positive with that command. He says, yes, that's a good, that's a good law. We're, we're going to keep that command. And in fact, that's, that's one of those commands that's actually fairly easy to keep. Um, you nev- no one ever wakes up, um, rolls over, and is like, you're not my wife. Right? It, it, it never happens on accident. Uh, so Jesus is saying, hey, you shall not commit adultery. I affirm that. And I also say, but I say to you, you know, he takes it a little step further. He says, but But you need to understand that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Don't measure yourself by your external conformity and your ability to say, I've never committed adultery. If you have looked at another person with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery with them in your heart. He's bringing it back to the heart of the issue. Because the whole goal of whole person righteousness, integrated righteousness, is not just for your external behavior to conform to what is right. That's great. That's good. In fact, society can't work without it. But Jesus' goal is deeper. He wants your heart to also desire what is right. He wants you to want what is best, what is good for you, your flourishing as a human being in relationship with God as we wait for the return of heaven to earth. Right? No one wants to live, and Jesus doesn't want you to live with your internal desires pushing you in one direction and the external rules or, or behavior expectations pulling you in a different direction. No one wants to live there. Though, of course, in, in, in our culture, the way that you overcome this when your desires conflict with someone else's rules and expectations. The way we overcome it is by changing the rules. Change the rules. Rebel. Reject the rules. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free, and you are welcome that you will now be singing that all day. Unlike our culture today, Instead of overthrowing the old ideas of right and wrong and creating a whole new morality, Jesus says that the way to integrity of life is to change your desires. Don't liberate your desires by throwing off 
the rules, disciple your desires by embracing grace. Because remember the whole context of the law. The law is not God saying, here's what you need to do for me to be okay with you. The law is, saying, is, is God saying, I have rescued you. I have redeemed you. I have bought you with a price. Now, live in this way. Here's how you show gratitude for my grace. So Jesus says, don't throw off the rules that are God telling you, here's how to live best. Here's how I designed you. Disciple your desires to line up with wanting what God wants for you. Anyway, this is why he's focusing on the heart. Let's look back at verse 28. Verse 28 is where he goes from just the superficial external command down to the heart issue. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, if you interpret this verse like I was taught to in high school, then you may think it means that you're not allowed to even be marginally attracted to anyone, or you're dangerously crossing the line into lust, and you're probably going to hell, unless you're willing to cut off your hands. So until you get married, bounce your eyes, eyes down, don't even look at a female, off limits. Now, no one ever said that, but that's what they meant. And then they said, once, but once you get married, then all of your desires will instantly change. You'll be attracted only and always just to your spouse, and all of your struggles with lust will be over. First hour gave me an amen. Come on. <laughs> all right, that is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not anti-sex. God created sex. Nor is Jesus against sexual desire. God also created sexual desire. Nor is Jesus against the act of recognizing beauty. And people can be beautiful, even people other than the one you're married to. Jesus is not against the act of recognizing beauty, nor is he vilifying our natural attraction to beauty. That's what beauty does. It draws. It attracts. Now, he's also not, like the rabbis did at his time, he's not locating the source of lust, the main problem, as women's bodies. The cultural expectation at the time was for women to cover themselves up. You wear head coverings, you cover your skin, make sure no skin is showing so that men can't lust. Jesus has no time for that approach. He says the problem is not in women's bodies, it's in men's hearts. Now, of course, we know that lust is not restricted. It's not an experience that only men have, though it seems paradigmatically, that's the wrong word for it. Um, it seems like, in, in general, men tend to struggle more visually than women do. So the emphasis here on looking at least tends to focus more on men than it does on women. But as we go through the symptoms, you're going to find that lust shows up in a whole lot more ways than just visual and applies to all of us. Now, it's important as we dig into this, remember, Jesus is not against bodies. He's not against our bodies. He's not against beautiful bodies. He's not against men and women being sexually attracted to each other. What Jesus is against is abusing the power of sex to make it do something it was never intended to do. 
Because the problem, the problem isn't just in the activity of sexual immorality, as if you could just refrain from that and you would be fine. The problem is in the heart posture that is willing or eager to use other people to get some sort of sexual satisfaction. I mean, it's an illustration that others have used, but in this passage, Jesus is acting like a good gardener, right? He's not just content to, top off, to cut off the top of the weeds that are above the soil line, as if that's the only part that matters. Any good gardener will tell you, if you just cut the weeds off, they're going to keep growing back. Jesus is rooting out the weeds at their source, digging them completely out of the ground, or even more radically, helping us dig out the seeds ourselves before they take root, before they grow, before they flower and choke out the fruit of virtuous living. So let's, let's look a little more closely at what Jesus says here. Uh, if you're the kind of person who writes in your Bible, uh, or you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, and you don't care if anyone else notices that you wrote in it, um, circle or underline the phrase with lustful intent. <laughs> if you do that in one of those Bibles under your seat, can you imagine like five years from now, somebody's flipping through them, they're like, why did somebody underline the word lust? It's the only word in this Bible that's underlined. This is such a weird church. Okay, maybe don't do that. Write in your, lean over and write in your parents' Bible if you're sitting next to them or something like that. Anyway, with lustful intent is, is the word here I want to focus on. See, there, there's plenty of Greek words for desire, even sexual desire. But the word Jesus uses here is a word used for the strongest type of desires, not just sexual, though it shows up that way, but the strongest type of desires. This is the word you would use when you're trying to communicate the desire to possess something to own something so that you can use it for your own purposes, so that you can use it to meet your needs. This is a desire that's so strong, it comes with, it comes with kind of a, I have to have this attitude. I need to own this thing. If I don't own it, if I don't possess it, if I don't control it, then what's the point of even living. That's why this word is used for things, for abilities, for powers, for elements of, or gauges of success. It's a strong and overwhelming desire to have, own, control something in order to use it to get something else that you want more. Now, if, if Jesus had been trying to say that looking at another person recognizing their beauty, and even feeling oneself sexually attracted to that person is just as bad as adultery, he could have used any number of perfectly good words for sexual desire and condemned the whole idea of sexual attraction entirely. But he doesn't. Instead, he uses this word that means having a thing in order to use it for your own purposes. So let's go back to this and paraphrase it with this fuller definition, like, you know, I know you, you've heard it said, you've heard it taught, you've heard it read that you shall not commit adultery, and that's good. I affirm that. But I also say, I also want you to know that everyone who looks at a woman, everyone who looks at another person and imagines what it would be like to possess that person, to use them for their own sexual purposes, has already committed adultery with that person in their hearts. 
in their heart. Okay, great. You know what? Round of applause. You didn't actually do it. But if you've already done it here, and you haven't made it to this point of whole person righteousness he's calling us to, it's one thing, of course, to avoid the actual behavior, and it's a good thing. But Jesus is more interested in the desire behind it. And the source of lust is this desire that reduces a person, takes a fully formed, complex human being, and transforms them into a commodity, a product on the shelf. Turns a person into a thing so that you can own it and acquire that person solely for what they can do for you. I mean, even if you never act on that desire, Jesus is saying, look, the, the act of using your God-given imagination to fantasize about and objectify the other person as a partner, well, you've crossed the line into lust. And you're watering the seed that is going to grow into this destructive weed that is adultery. So don't, don't even let your heart go there, he's saying. Look, look, it's one thing to obey the law. It's another thing to want to. And so the source of lust, the source of lust is this desire to reduce another person into a thing that you can use and discard solely for the purpose of your own pleasure. That's lust. So how does that show up in our lives? Right, if the source of lust is a desire to reduce another person down to a thing and then use them for your own pleasure, well, what does that actually look like? How does it, does it work itself out? Well, like anything, in order to spot the abuse of something, you need to know what the actual good use of a thing is. If, if we're going to spot the symptoms of lust, the, the misuse of sex, then we have to make sure we're clear on what the right use of sex is. Last week, we talked at length about how Jesus believed that sex is a covenant good, right? That it only makes sense within a covenant relationship. What that means is that sexual intimacy is a good thing, something human beings desire. We are created with the desire to unite sexually with another person. And that's good, but it's the kind of good that can only flourish, as God intended, within covenantal relationship, not a consumer relationship. You remember the difference. A consumer relationship is like a gym membership, right? As long as they have enough treadmills and they don't put too much chlorine in the pool and your favorite classes are there, then you're fine. You're good. But as soon as that changes or you're not getting what you want out of it, then you go to the manager and you're like, look, you adjust to me or I'm out of here. And he weighs the pros and cons and decides what to do. That's totally normal and the right way to interact in a covenant or in a, a, a consumer relationship, not in a covenant relationship. And a covenant relationship like a marriage is different. I don't have time to dig back into it again, so you have to listen back to last week's recording. But in a covenant relationship where you are both committed more to the good of the relationship and the good of the other than to your own good, in that kind of relationship, then sex between a husband and a wife becomes incredibly meaningful because sex within that marriage covenant actually reinforces the covenant and recommits both parties to it. One author writes that sex in a marriage is a covenant renewal service. It's a, it's a uh, what do they call it when you renew your vows? A vow renewal. It's called a vow renewal. <laughs> it's a vow renewal ceremony. 
Every time a husband and wife engage in sexual intimacy, they are reenacting their marriage vows, renewing their vows, recommitting to the terms of the covenant and saying to one another, my soul, my body, my future are yours. I hold nothing back. And when sex is used in this way, as God designed it, then you could say sex has, is a multidimensional experience. There's dimensions of relationship, of purpose. There's a dimension in which you and the other are able to embrace your full humanity. Now, we intuitively know that sexual intimacy has a dimension of relationship, right? After all, it's not about the bringing together of just two bodies, but two people. And two people are always in a relationship of, of some sort when they're doing anything together. Now, if, you've, if you're like me, and I hope that you're not, and you, you, you've been reading books about sex for months now, <laughs> it's, it's awkward when you're, your stack of book on, books on sex is like this tall. Um, for those of you listening, I, I gestured around my knees. I keep running across some of the older books using older language and phraseology, like referring to uh, sexual intercourse as the conjugal act. Do you guys use this one? This is what you do when you're teaching your kids about this stuff? Um, so when, when a mommy and a daddy love each other, right? No. So the conjugal act is actually a, a very evocative word because it means to be yoked together, to be conjoined together. And, and the word contrary to our word, sex. The word itself implies what the action does. It joins two people together, binds them together, yokes them together. But of course, lust, lust has to reduce the ability of sex to bind people together. It has to operate where sex is apart from relationship, where it removes the the actual love or the mutual self-giving. So you can see one of the ways that lust shows up in our lives. Whenever we focus on our own sexual needs being met, we, we elevate our own physical pleasure above active love, mutual self-giving, we're giving in to lust. This can happen even in a marriage. When you make sex more about what you're experiencing, was that good? Was it, sat, you know, was it satisfying? Was there pleasure? You make it more about what you're experiencing and less about what you're expressing, which is your covenantal commitment to one another. See, when sex is operating the way God designed it, there's this dimension of relationship, of bonding with one another. But there's also a dimension of purpose, dimension of purpose, sex results in something. And I know we don't often talk about this part, and for couples struggling with infertility like my wife and I, it's, it's difficult for us to talk about. But when everything is functioning well, sex has the power to bring new life into the world. I mean, you realize how powerful that is, right? You can create something that will last into eternity. You and God are the only ones that can do that. Sex has the power to literally create life. And one of the results, one of the natural results, the God-given results of sex is to bind two people inextricably to one another and to a third human being. 
to bind three people together in a bond that cannot be dissolved, that, that lasts into eternity. And in order for lust to have its way, it has to prevent or circumvent the binding power that sex has, both by preventing children from being conceived and also by you know, actively working against the feelings of affection and attachment that come with sex, that bonding power. So again, you can see one of the ways that sex shows up in our lives. If we only engage in a sexual relationship once we have made sure that we are completely, we've completely closed ourselves off to any possibility, or maybe I should use the word risk, of that sex resulting in a long-term commitment to another person, and whether that's a marriage commitment or the commitment that comes with creating a new human being. If we will only engage in a sexual relationship as long as we can guarantee that there will be no chance of long-term commitment, well, then we've begun the process of reducing sex down from its full potency, as intended, within a marriage and into something that we just manipulate and simply use to satiate our own physical desires. I want the physical closeness. I want the emotional closeness, but I don't want the risk of actually being bonded to you or to the human being that might be created. Now, to be clear, there are good reasons for a couple to decide not to have children uh, or to actively prevent the conception of children. There are good and wise reasons for that. But an attitude of, I don't want kids to impede my freedom isn't a good reason. And it makes you use sex for something it wasn't designed for. That reason is just code language for, you know, my future freedom, my future ability to choose to do what I want and go where I want and be what I want is more important to me than any other human being, which is the exact opposite of what you commit to in a one flesh covenant of marriage. See how those two things are at odds? And I hope you're seeing how, how sex is so much bigger, so much more powerful than lust makes it, as lust reduces dimension after dimension after dimension of sex in order to keep it from being relational, keep it from being purposeful, and keep it from being human. See, there's also a dimension to sex where sex confirms us in our full humanness. We are physical, emotional, and spiritual beings who long for physical and emotional and spiritual intimacy to be close with someone. Even more than intimacy, what we really desire is a physical and emotional and a spiritual union. Right? In sex, we don't, want to just, we don't just want to be close. We want to be united. Well, lust has to deny that that sort of spiritual union can even exist. It has to insist that we're just, mere, we're just material beings, no embodied soul. Cut that whole part out, no spiritual component. No emotional component. Cut it out, push it to the side. Don't, don't get too emotional. Lust has to focus down on just the physical. And even then, it's not physical union, it's physical gratification. See how God designed for sex within a one flesh union to be this incredibly powerful multidimensional experience and everything outside of that and the, the lustful 
desire to possess someone else and use them for your own gratification continually reduces and reduces and reduces every dimensional aspect of, of good created sex down to just some point of pleasure in time. See, the good of sex is not limited to just physical sensation. The goods of sex are the emotional. There's the physical part too. It's the physical bonding, the emotional bonding, the spiritual bonding that takes place. The possibility of being indissolubly bound to another human being for life. The thick web of meaning that comes from being embedded in a broader familial and societal fabric. We know intuitively that sex means all of this, which is why even today, secular journalists writing for secular audiences are starting to write more frequently things like, you know, it doesn't take us long to figure out that having lots of sex without consequences doesn't mean we're sexually satisfied. And that even being sexually satisfied doesn't mean we're actually fulfilled. You know, we think it's what we want, and it's miserable. Lust is so seductive because it promises us a fulfilling and pleasurable experience without any sort of commitment and with none of the the risk that comes with full human intimacy. But it's an empty promise. It's the commitment, it's the risk that actually makes the experience fulfilling. And lust separates it all. And if your sexual appetite has been trained by years of lustful behavior, then it's an uphill battle to keep from choosing the easy and the empty and the self-oriented view of sex and to instead grasp the difficult, the risky, but the ultimately fulfilling and good sex that God has designed you for in a lifetime commitment. You see how big sex is? How small lust makes it? Is it any wonder then that Jesus gives such a radical command to those suffering from an inordinate desire for lust? And it is a radical command. He says, hey, if you struggle in this area, which we all do, get a knife. That's supposed to shock you. So it's okay to have, yeah, that nervous laughter is good. All right, let's get into the application here, the solution to lust, right? If the source of lust is the desire to possess, to use another person for your own gratification, to meet your own needs, and the, those symptoms, the way lust shows up in your lives is any time we reduce the multidimensional power of sex as God designed it down to something we can control and manipulate for our own ends, well, what do you do about that? What do you do about that? Well, Matthew 5, verses 29 through 30. Hey, he says, you know, if you've ever looked at a person and desired to possess that person for what they can do for you in your life, well, then, you know, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Or if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's, it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Let's take a poll. Um, how many of you want this to be literal? Okay, 
How many of you want this to literally be a metaphor? Okay, all right. There are some in the past who have taken it literally. One, one church father, um, in his more reckless youth, he came to Christ. He was passionate for the kingdom. He was called to teach and to preach to both men and women and struggling with lust. He had himself castrated so he could teach to women without experiencing any lust and later came to regret the decision. Most throughout history have interpreted this statement the way Jesus meant it. This is wisdom literature, okay? It's, it's a strongly worded metaphor. That it's in here to shock us into realizing how serious lust is. Right? In this metaphor, Jesus is asking us, how seriously are you willing to take his call to whole person righteousness? Which do you think is worse? Would you rather act on your lustful desires and end up in a hell of your own making or lose a hand? Which is worse? Would you rather use your God-given imagination to dehumanize the people around you, turn them into mental objects for your own fantasies, and invite God to treat you the same way you treat others? Or lose an eye? Which is worse? Right, the radical, the... the bloody nature of the metaphor is designed to get us to ask, how radically are you willing to deal with sin? How drastically are you willing to root out lust? How much are you willing to give in order to avoid these temptations? Now, maybe you're, you're listening to all of this and you're thinking, I, you know, I just don't see what the big deal here is. Right? And there's plenty of us who think this way. You know, what's, what is the problem with two consenting adults doing whatever they want with each other, right? Aren't, aren't two people free to do whatever they agree to do? And on the one hand, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, people can do what they want. They're free to do what they want. And two people can choose to use one another as objects, as things, for their own gratification. But doing so treats the other person as less than human, forces you to act in ways that are less than human, and you both damage a human being that God created and loves. You know, even if you and I decide that the best thing we can do with our cars after church is to drive them around the parking lot and just keep crashing them into each other over and over and over again until there's only one person left driving and we're doing it all for the enjoyment of the watching crowd. You know, first hour's cheering us on down there and saying, man, this is, I knew that's what second hour was like. And we could do it because there are cars and they're things and we're free to do with our things more or less what we want. Now, it may not be what the car was designed for, may not be what the maker intended the car to be used for, but whatever, it's a thing. And you can dispose of things. People aren't things. People are not things, even if Tinder looks like a menu. People are not things, and you can't just do whatever you want to a person, even if they consent to be a thing. Even if someone says, you can use me as a thing, it doesn't make it right. And maybe on, on the other hand, you're listening to this and and thinking, man, I wish I, could, I wish I could be free from my lusts. 
Right? Many of us struggle, say, I can't seem to go anywhere without objectifying the people around me or imagining or turning them into objects, using people for my own gratification. I can't break the habit of using other people for my own pleasure. If that's you, and that's most of us, well, we have some hard work to do. I mean, it, on the one hand, you may be in a marriage and using the other person. And if you are, you, you've got to confess it and ask for forgiveness. I am sorry I have treated you like a thing. You could be not married, um, but still in, in, a, in sexual relationships. Maybe you're a serial monogamist is one person at a time, or, or maybe it's just anybody, whoever. Even if you're being faithful to one person, you're still using them, asking them to do with their bodies what you are not willing to do with your life. If that's you and you are a follower of Jesus and you are reading Jesus' manual for discipleship and he's calling you to bring whole person righteousness and integrity into this area of your life, then the, the hard truth is God is saying, you got you to end that relationship. You've got to end it. It may, have, it may be the healthiest relationship you've ever had in your life, but you still have to end it. Maybe not forever, but for now, until you, you are willing to commit with your soul what you are doing with your body, don't do this with your body. You're disintegrating yourself. Now, maybe that you're, you're single. You're not sleeping with anyone, but you're like I was in high school, you know, dreaming of the day when God will reward you for your abstinence by giving you amazing and mind-blowing sex with an incredibly beautiful person because, you know, he rewards you for that kind of obedience. If that's the reason you're, you know, you're doing your best to, to keep the command, don't commit adultery, to even keep the command, don't look with lustful intent. If, that, if that's, if you're just brute forcing your way, trying to do your best so that later you'll finally get the thing you wanted. I hope you get it. Odds are you won't, and I should say odds are even stronger that once you get it, you'll realize it's, we all do. Nobody's perfect. It's not what you imagined it would be. And it takes work. And hey, maybe you're single, you're doing your best, but your life is full of lusts, filled with secret desires and private sins. You gotta do the hardest thing of all to do, which is tell someone. Swallow the pride that keeps it in the dark and tell someone. Now, I know too, and I, and I don't want to accidentally skip over this. This is a very heavy topic, and especially a very topic because many of us, I mean, statistically, a huge number of us know that sex is a big deal because we've been the victim of someone else's lust. Someone else has used you for their own gratification. Someone else has made promises to you that should have lasted a lifetime and didn't. Some of you has, have made promises and have not fulfilled them, not kept them. Some of us have been actually abused in this area. And if that's you, please please make sure you're talking with someone, a qualified Christian counselor who can walk with you through the long-term healing 
the, the long-term work that it takes to heal in this, this area. I mean, no matter what culture says, some of us know viscerally that sex is a big deal because of the pain that you've experienced in this area. Others of us know that sex is a big deal because of the pain we've caused in this area. And if that's you, too, I know we've been talking about how big of a deal this is, how complex the whole issue is, how powerful sex is, but none of it is more powerful than the the forgiveness of Jesus and his blood shed on your behalf. Whether you are the victim or an abuser, whether you've been using your spouse or using a string of people, whether you've been being used, whether you're trying your hardest not to, to do all this right, what really matters is at the end of all of it is that Jesus is not interested in you keeping the rules perfectly. He's not concerned with just you doing the right thing, but desiring the right thing, which is why he gave himself and died in your place, not just to forgive your, de- your deeds, but to redeem your desires, to make us slowly and incrementally into the kind of people who don't need a law, because it's what we want to do. That's not going to happen all at once, and it's not going to happen permanently and until heaven comes back to earth, but, but Jesus has guaranteed it. He is returning, and when He returns, we won't even need this law anymore. We will be ones who desire not to use one another, but to love one another. That's the goal. Now, again, this, this is a complex topic, and it's a heavy topic, and there's a lot still in it. We're going to spend one more week uh, sort of jumping off from this passage. But this time we're going to jump forward and see how the early church, especially Paul, took this teaching and said, now, how does that work in a world where sexually anything goes? That's where we're going next week. Let's pray. Father, you call us, and Jesus calls us in his preaching to whole life righteousness in so many different areas, some of which seem easy and others of which are incredibly difficult as they strike so deeply and so personally into who we feel we are. Father, we pray we need your transformation of our hearts so that not just externally we obey, but internally we long for a full, free realization of the good that you have created for us. Father, don't let us settle for the counterfeits as we wait for the goodness you've created us to experience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.